0: say this a number of times, um, but sitting at the front, it is amazing to hear the voices rise as everyone sings. Um, I can tell you, you sound like a whole lot more than there are, uh, and I praise God for that. Um, as I've been preaching on the strong bonds of the church, I think worship is one of those strong bonds. So oh, please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are now here to worship you. In the word, Lord, to look inside your scriptures, Father, to hear what you have to tell us. You've given your word, Father. You've provided us all we need to know, all that you want us to know. Father, help us to understand. Help us to clear away distractions and cobwebs and confusion, Father. Help us to, to focus on the truth of scripture. Father, I pray for your words. Father, I pray to be able to articulate your truth Father, we lift up Pastor Ron, who's ill today, Lord, we pray that you heal him quickly, in Jesus' name, amen. For those of you that came in after announcements, um, I am not Pastor Ron. Um, It was his turn to preach today, but uh, he sent me a text yesterday afternoon that said his pneumonia had caused a relapse, and so he's homesick in bed right now and not doing real well. Um... Pray for him, pray that he gets the rest that he needs, and pray that God heals him quickly on this. Um, If it's the same pneumonia I had back at the beginning of the year, it took me about a month and a half to get better. Um, And so uh, we we do pray that he's able to to rest and and recover. So this morning, I want to continue with our consideration of the strong bonds of Christ's church. And we started several weeks ago by considering the things that unified that first church. We learned from Acts 2 that the members of that first church in Jerusalem had several things in common. Do you recall what they are? They were called by Christ. They were drawn by the gospel. They were given the Holy Spirit by whom we are sealed. And they publicly declared their union with him through obedience and baptism. In addition, we learned from Acts 2.42 the priorities of that first church. Do you remember what those are? The apostles' teaching, fellowship, the breaking of bread or the Lord's Supper, and prayers. Now the first week we considered three of those, the apostles' teaching, the fellowship and prayers, and then the past two weeks we considered the ordinances of the church. The first of these was breaking of bread, which we refer to as the Lord's Supper. And of course the second ordinance is baptism. Baptism. And we observe each of these because they were commanded by Christ. Recall that the Lord's Supper is a perpetual command. We see this in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-three through 26. And much like the Passover, it's to be observed regularly. Israel observed the Passover regularly. And last week we saw that baptism is a command of Christ, ordered when he gave us the Great Commission of Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And we have seen that these ordinances in particular, or are particular to those who believe in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. Neither the Lord's Supper nor baptism imparts grace for salvation. And rather they are symbolic of the, or representative of the finished work of Christ. By celebrating the Lord's Supper, you recall that we remember his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Proclaiming that he will return. And through baptism, we identify with the death, burial, and resurrection, demonstrating that we are new creations in Jesus Christ. Neither of these has any meaning for non-believers. A person cannot celebrate or identify with something in which he does not believe. It becomes just an empty and meaningless ritual. But believers rejoice together in the observance of the Lord's Supper and the practice of baptism. Baptism. And rightly done, these are times of celebration in which the whole assembly or the whole membership of the church comes together. And they contribute to a strong bond among Christian brothers and sisters. Well, as we examine the church in Acts 2, 42 to 47, we read about a strong bond of the church in verse 44. And it says, And all who believed were together and had all things in common. Did you catch that? They were together. Now, this was before there was any division or any strife among them. Sadly, we know that this didn't last long because in Acts 6, we learned that the Hellenistic Jews felt that their widows were being neglected. And the apostles determined to appoint men, the ones we refer to as the prototype deacons, to resolve the issue. And then we read in Acts 6-7 that the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. The division was ended, the strong bonds continue, and the church grows. Sometimes the strong bonds of the church can be affected and can even be broken. Sin rears its ugly head even among those who are the most spiritual. We say or we do things that hurt one another. Sometimes we do this inadvertently. We don't mean to do it, we just do it. But other times we do so intentionally. And when this happens, feelings are hurt, friendships are strained, and fellowship is avoided. But Jesus gives us a command that when practiced, mends those tattered and sometimes torn bonds. It is the command to forgive one another. And when properly observed, our bonds are actually strengthened. We become aware that the power of Christ can overcome anything, even hurt feelings, even offense. And the world around us becomes aware that in Christ there is true forgiveness. Not like that which is practiced by people in the world. It's a different type of forgiveness. Now, to preach on forgiveness is to preach on a very large topic. There are many aspects to forgiveness. There are many points to be made. And there are many considerations to be given. And I cannot possibly cover it all in one sermon or maybe even in 10 or 20 sermons. Now, rest assured, you're not getting 10 or 20 sermons. But I'm gonna do my best to do it in just two sermons, which means I'm gonna give you an overview of forgiveness. And we're gonna look at what forgiveness is, why we forgive, and how we forgive. Today, we're gonna look at what forgiveness is and why we forgive. As I started to write this yesterday afternoon, I thought I could cram it all into one sermon, but it became apparent to me that I couldn't get by the first passage. It is so rich, and there's so much to share with you, and rather than back the dump truck up and pour it all on you, I thought I'd I'd break it up. So you can scratch out the title of the sermon on on your green sheet today, and instead you can put this title in there, The Strong Bonds of Christ's Church, Forgiveness. The Strong Bonds of Christ's Church. Forgiveness, part one. Well, let's get started with our first point. What is forgiveness? What is forgiveness? And we've all heard it said that we should forgive and forget. That's a, that's a common phrase, right? Forgive and forget, move on. After all, isn't true forgiveness, when we, if we, it isn't true forgiveness if we don't forget forgiveness. What someone has done to us and, or done to others. I mean, that's what we're taught in the world, right? That forgive and forget. If we truly forgive, we must never think about the offense of the sin. How many times have you heard people say, look, let's just start over. Let's, let's rewind our relationship. Let's start back at the beginning as if none of this ever happened. We'll pretend. We'll just pretend it never happened. We're all here together now. What if I told you that to forgive and forget is not found in the Bible? In fact, it's an unbiblical concept. But Pastor Jeff, you say, of course it's in the Bible. It's right next to that verse that said, God helps those who help themselves. (laughs) You know, you can find that verse in Second Hesitations (laughs) 11.8. Actually, many people point to Isaiah 43.25 where God says I I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and I will not remember your sins. See, God forgets our sins, right? He doesn't remember our sins. Stop and think about that for a moment. The text does not actually say God forgets our sin. It says he remembers them no more. And there's a difference. God is omniscient. He knows everything. How then could he forget something? He wouldn't be omniscient then, would he? If he could forget something, he wouldn't know everything and he wouldn't be God. So God doesn't forget our sins. Quite differently, the passage says he will not remember our sin. And we have to understand what the term remember means. To remember something is to act on it. In Genesis 8-1, we read that God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. We read in Exodus two twenty four that God looked down on Israel, who was being oppressed by Egypt, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. Now, God didn't look down in the middle of the great flood and suddenly recall that, hey, there's Noah. He's out there floating around. And he didn't he hadn't turned his eyes from Israel for 400 years while they were being oppressed and enslaved in Egypt just to happen to recall that he made a promise a few centuries back. In both cases, God took action for the benefit of those he remembered. In Genesis 8, 2, we read that he caused a wind to blow over the earth, drying it out so the ark could rest on solid ground. And in Exodus 3, we find that he raised up Moses to deliver Israel from the Egyptians. And there's many other verses that talk of God remembering people and promises in Genesis and in Exodus and even in the Psalms. This is what God says when he says, I will not remember your sins, So when he says he won't remember them, you can be assured he will not act on them. You see, he already has. Jesus died on the cross to pay for your sins. But if you haven't trusted in the work of Jesus Christ, then God will indeed remember your sins. Forgiveness is not forgetting. We might forgive the person who, because of his age or mental or physical impairment, drove through a stop sign, hitting another car and seriously injuring its occupants. We might forgive, but we don't forget and let him keep driving. We take his license away. We might forgive the uncle or the cousin who committed a crime against a child, but we don't ban him from ever joining in family get-togethers again we don't leave them alone with the children so that leaves us a question of what then is forgiveness if it's not forgetting what is forgiveness well turn with me to Matthew 18 and we'll look at what Jesus taught about forgiveness Matthew chapter 18 and many of you are familiar with this parable it's about the unforgiving servant there's some lessons that, are, that just stand out as I was studying this passage yesterday, and as I've been studying on forgiveness, it really popped out to me, and I'd like to share them with you this morning. So follow along as I read Matthew 18, starting with verse 20, actually verse 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my, will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay... And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. When someone sins or commits an offense against us, They become indebted to us. It is a debt. How many times have you heard the phrase, how can I make this up to you? To make amends, they want to do something to cancel that debt. Maybe do some type of service. Mow your lawn, wash your car, watch your kids. Or maybe they want to give a gift of some sort. Husbands, this is where we bring out the dozen roses. But sometimes we want the offender to pay by suffering. And this is called vengeance. Revenge. How many of you heard the phrase, revenge is a dish best served cold? Getting even with someone, making them pay. It's because they have a debt. But Paul tells us in Romans twelve nineteen, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Paul himself practiced this. He wrote in 2 Timothy 4.14, Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Paul didn't say, I'll get even with him or I'll get back at him. The Lord will repay him. We must consider that ultimately... All sin is committed against God. See, sin is the breaking of his law, not ours. David knew this when he wrote Psalm 51. In verse 4, he writes, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. When we take vengeance, we are acting in the place of God. We are taking God's place. But you may ask, when you file a criminal charge against someone, isn't that taking vengeance? Oh, well, recall when we looked at Romans 13 a few weeks ago. It tells us about the government official. Verse 4 says, For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. You see how this ties in? God appoints the avenger, but it is God's appointment. Government is appointed by God. All human institution is appointed by God. When we try to exact vengeance, we're usurping God's authority. While we might forgive someone, there are still consequences for his actions. Rather than exacting vengeance ourselves, we must trust that God will act in his good time. And that's a very hard thing to do because we we want justice, right? We We want to see justice. And we want justice here on earth. But the reality is, God brings justice. Whether he brings justice here on earth or in eternity future, justice is held at the judgment seat of Christ either the sinner pays the penalty or Christ's death is the payment for his sin. Either way, every sin is accounted for. We must never forget that. When we forgive, we must remember that every sin is accounted for. It is not up to us to take vengeance. So when we forgive, we decide we're not going to collect on that debt. We're not going to collect on it. We don't hold the sin against the offender. We don't determine to make him pay in any way, shape, or form. Now, you say that's all well and good. But people who are Christians forgive debts, or who are not Christians, they forget debts all the time. So why preach about forgiveness? It's what we do in society, right? What makes forgiveness so particular? Well, this takes us... To the second point, the why do we forgive? Why do we forgive? We forgive because we have been forgiven. We forgive because we have been forgiven. Now, let's consider again this parable of the unforgiving servant. He was forgiven a great deal. Matthew 18, 24 tells us that his debt was 10,000 talents. Now, despite what people try and do and figure out and calculate and all that, there's no real way to know what that means in today's money. Some say it's millions upon millions of dollars. Um, There's just no way. One commentator has suggested that The taxes collected from the provinces of Idumea, Judea, Samaria, and Galilee were about 900 talents each year. So at that rate, that would mean that the number 10,000 talents would reflect the taxes collected for those four provinces over an 11-year period. It's a lot of money. But the number can also merely represent an astronomical amount, one that's incalculable just the highest number we have you can consider it like a child saying a hundred gazillion billion (laughs) now whether it's 10,000 talents or a hundred gazillion billion the point is that the servant could not possibly pay that amount to the king there is no way he could pay his debt I don't know about you But I can't imagine how someone can run up a debt that big that he couldn't pay it back, that is so enormous that it's incalculable, a monetary debt that big that they can't put a number on it. But see, we owe a debt too. One that is above our beyond, or beyond our ability to pay. Unlike the case of the servant, I know how we have racked up that type of debt. We do it with every unselfish, with every selfish deed. We do it with every slanderous word, with every impatient action, with every evil and immoral thought. And every day we add to the total of that debt. Every day, sometimes every hour, sometimes every few minutes. Because we have sinned against an infinite God, we have sinned infinitely. Think about that. Because we have sinned against an infinite God, we have sinned infinitely. It would take an infinite person to pay an infinite debt, we couldn't pay that ourselves. Jesus did an infinite God paying an infinite debt now don't delude yourselves into thinking that you're able to get into heaven because of your own goodness your debt is too enormous just like that servant your debt is too enormous and don't delude yourself into thinking your debt is not as high as the person sitting next to you That's what the Pharisee thought when he was praying and Jesus shared that. Thank goodness I'm not like that that tax collector over there. Romans 3.23 tells us all have sinned. And Romans 6.23 tells us the penalty for sin is death. Every sinner is subject to the death penalty. Now what do you know about the death penalty? It's an interesting point here they can only execute you once. It doesn't matter how many people you might have murdered, you're only going to get executed once. Everyone on death row is paying the same penalty. No matter how heinous their crime, they're paying the same penalty. And we, my friends, were born on death row. Subject to the death penalty. No one guilty than the person sitting next to him. But there's good news. The king showed mercy to the servant. Rather than selling the servant and his family into slavery to even partially pay a debt that he could not possibly pay in full, the king let him go. He forgave the debt. In the same way, Christ has paid your debt. The king has forgiven you. But notice the servant accepted his master's forgiveness. We can use our sanctified imagination to assume that if he didn't accept forgiveness, then he would have been accountable for the full debt. But he accepted the forgiveness offered. Or he could try to work it off, but remember the... Debt was so big, it was unpayable. In the end, he would still be sold along with his family. And the servant obviously recognized this and agreed to the king's terms. He had only to accept. In the same way, you can either accept God's terms for forgiveness or you can try to pay it for yourself. You can rely solely on the atoning work of Jesus Christ and have your debt paid in full. Or you can try to pay your debt yourself by being good enough and doing enough good things. But if that's the case, understand you still end up in debt. Because it's an infinite, unpayable debt. But that isn't all to the parable. You know the rest. The servant hadn't just had his debt forgiven, he goes out and collects on debts that are owed to him. He's not so forgiving. In fact, he goes after a fellow servant who owes him a a minuscule amount. In verse 28, we read that it was about 100 denarii, about 100 days wages. Compare that to the 11 years of taxes coming in from the four provinces 100 days wages 11 years of taxes in four provinces and what does he do he chokes the man and throws him in prison until the debt is paid he wasn't he wasn't called in by his master and had himself choked out he was called in and pleaded for mercy but here he chokes the man and has him thrown into prison anybody see the problem with this if he's in prison, how's he gonna earn money to pay off the debt? I think we can all readily see how ungrateful, unfeeling and unthoughtful this first servant is. His fellow servants obviously thought so too. Verse 31 tells us they were so upset they went and told their master. If we can look at 10,000 talents and equate that with our infinite sin, We can equate 100 denarii with a single sin committed against us compared to all the sins we've committed. Now let that sink in. We take offense at a single sin someone commits against us when we've committed a lifetime of sin. And by not extending forgiveness for so little when you've been forgiven for so much You show that you too are unfeeling, ungrateful, and unthoughtful. Ungrateful because you're dismissing the grace that was extended to you. Unfeeling because you refuse to extend grace to another in need. And unthoughtful because when you lock someone up in the prison of your unforgiveness, he cannot get himself out. You've put him in that prison and he can't get out. Verse 32 through 34 tells us what happened. The king summoned the unforgiving servant. And he rebukes the unforgiving servant for his lack of mercy. He does this in anger. If you ever think that God is not a wrathful God, you need to reconsider that. God is angry at sin, and his wrath is a terrible thing. And the king, the master in this passage, responded in anger over the sin of the unforgiving servant. He sends the unforgiving servant himself to jail. He throws him in prison. Now, I preach from the ESV Bible... I know some of you are using the NASB and some of you are using the NIV. This is one of those times the New American Standard Bible and the New International Version render it better than the English Standard Version. The NASB said that the servant was turned over to the torturers. The NIV said that he was turned over to the jailers to be tortured. Both give the sense that the servant was not merely jailed, but subjected to discipline. Some commentators compare the sermon to one who is unsaved, evidenced by his refusal to forgive. But we have to be careful not to base the forgiveness we receive from Christ on the forgiveness we give to others. Otherwise, our salvation is one on works. I've forgiven him, therefore I merit salvation. I've forgiven someone else, therefore I've earned this. I deserve this. That's not what the Bible teaches us. If that were the case, then salvation becomes conditional. Because if I've earned salvation, I've merited salvation, and then I turn around and I don't forgive, then I lose salvation. And that's not what we teach either. That's more of a a free will salvation. You can decide to follow Christ and you can decide not to follow Christ and you better hope that those times you decide not to follow Christ, or so those times you sin, that you don't die because then you've died in your sins and you won't be saved. I also noticed that since a servant had been granted forgiveness, how could it mean he was not forgiven or that his forgiveness was rescinded? God does not rescind his forgiveness. God does not take away your salvation. Quite the contrary. Paul tells us in Romans that nothing can separate us from the love of God. And the part I like best about that is nothing created. I'm created. And I can't even separate myself from the love of God. How wonderful is that? That once I've followed Jesus Christ, once I am saved, I can't unsave myself. No matter how badly I sin. Now, that doesn't mean God won't discipline me, and it doesn't mean He may not call me home to keep me from continuing in a life of sin. But I can't lose my salvation. I can't even do that. So, when we read the passage, we'd have to read into it that the person lost his salvation. Now, some may tell you that um, he was never really saved to begin with, Um, but the forgiveness was granted. And the forgiveness was accepted. And I think we take it on face value. So there's another thought to it. The servant's debt was forgiven. He can be compared to one who is saved, but is sinning by not forgiving others. So we have someone who is saved, but he's not forgiving And remember, Jesus is telling this parable to the disciples. It was Peter that asked about forgiveness. So he's got the disciples gathered around him. He's not telling it to the whole world. He's telling it to his disciples. And I align with this view that it represents one who himself is forgiven but not himself willing to forgive. And then we note that the servant is turned over to the jailers or to the torturers not to executioners. He's turned over to jailers and torturers. So what the king wanted was for the man to show forgiveness for others. Remember, he said that, "You should have shown mercy. What he really owes is a contrite heart, a grateful heart, all exhibited in the willingness to forget others. forgive others. That's what he owed. And that's what he's there to learn. If this is so, then the torturing could be compared to harsh circumstances and and discipline in which one might find himself when he doesn't forgive. We know that God disciplines us. And perhaps you've been in this position. You're offended by someone, but you don't forgive. And now something's just not right. Whenever you see that person, and in Hollister, it's not hard not to see someone. (laughs) Whenever you see that person, maybe you cut down that other aisle in Safeway, push that cart around the corner. Or maybe you look down while you're at the checkout line in Target, carefully studying the label on that carton of deodorant that you're buying. (laughs) All because you want to avoid speaking with that person. Your conscience is not clear. And this break in fellowship is a strong reminder of the forgiveness you refuse to give that other person. In essence, you're now living in your own prison, estranged from the joy of unity with Christ and with that other person. You are now in a prison of your own making. Well, Jesus ends his parable in verse 35 with this principle. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. God promises to discipline us if we don't obey his commands. Refusing to forgive brings God's discipline. This is why some are experiencing trouble in their marriages. Husbands and wives sleeping in separate bedrooms. This is why parents are estranged from their children. And children estranged from their siblings. Some don't attend family gatherings if other certain relatives will be there. This is why there is discomfort in some households. Roommates don't talk to each other or refuse to work out their conflicts. This is why churches divide and Christians in one community don't talk with other Christians in the same community. And pretty soon we all end up in our own prison. This discomfort, it pricks the conscience and tells you that all is not right. And it doesn't go away with time. It doesn't go away with time because the debt remains. You're still holding on to that debt. And because you won't forgive, you're in prison. So I want to ask you a question Are you in a debtor's prison? Are you in a debtor's prison? Have you refused to forgive someone? Perhaps you're a husband who has not forgiven his wife or a wife who holds on to her husband's offense. Maybe you are a son or daughter who refuses to forgive your parents for something they did or didn't do while raising you. Perhaps you're a brother or a sister or a niece or a nephew who just won't let go of some unkind word or thoughtless action. Maybe you're a roommate who's just fed up with the other person. Or perhaps you're a church member who has decided to avoid another church member rather than forgive. Jesus says we are to forgive, especially a Christian brother or sister. He may be your husband, but he's also your brother if you both are saved. She may be your wife, but she's also your sister if you both are saved. Children and parents and siblings and nieces and nephews are all brothers and sisters if they're saved. Roommates are brothers and sisters in Christ if they are saved. Every member of Grace Bible Church is a brother or sister to every other member of Grace Bible Church. And we are told to forgive our brother in Christ. So I ask you, what is keeping you from forgiving? What is keeping you from forgiving? Remember, we learned about observing the Lord's Supper in a worthy or unworthy manner. If you partake in an unworthy manner, you eat and drink judgment on yourself. Partaking when you have not forgiven a debt is to do so in an unworthy manner. Paul tells us, examine ourselves, so that we may not be judged. So I call on you to examine yourselves, if you have not forgiven a debt, do not be judged. Or perhaps you're in a debtor's prison, not because you refuse to forgive, but because you're not forgiven. Maybe you don't feel you can be forgiven. That what you've done is so bad that God couldn't possibly and wouldn't possibly cancel your debt. Well, if that's the case, I urge you to look to the only one who can free you from the debtor's prison of hell the prison where you cannot ever pay your debt in full, the prison where you will be forever tortured, the prison where you will forever be alone. In Acts 2.38, Peter told the crowd watching that first church in Jerusalem, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. If today you're not saved, don't let another day of imprisonment go by. Come and talk to me. Talk to Pastor Ron or talk to Pastor Steve. Jesus tells us in Revelation 1.18, he holds the keys to death and Hades. Jesus holds the keys to your prison. And he's waiting to free you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we look at forgiveness, we can't help but understand the, the magnificence Just how large the forgiveness you have given us. Our sin against an infinite God. But Lord, while we can't pay that debt, Jesus did. And Lord, we are so grateful. And just like that servant in the parable, Father, we didn't have to pay something. We didn't have to do something. It was just granted. All we have to do is accept it. It is your free gift we know that from Ephesians 2:8. And Father, help us also to forgive others. Help us not to dismiss, to be ungrateful, for the grace that you've shown us, for the forgiveness you've given us. Help us show that to others. Father, I pray for any here that have not forgiven in their hearts, whether it be a spouse, whether it be a parent or a sibling or another relative, whether it be a roommate. Father, whether it be a coworker, Father, whether it be another church member. Lord, I pray that you move in hearts and bring about forgiveness and restoration. Father, I pray that none of us stays in a prison of our own making. Or rather we turn to Christ, follow Christ, obey Christ, and experience the true freedom, the freedom from sin and slavery. Lord, in all this we thank you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.